remind you, 007, that Blofeld's dead. Finished. The least we can expect from you now is a little plain, solid work. Welcome back to Lucky Minute 13 of the 007 Minute, where each and every other day we go over one minute of one of the best uh, Connery-era uh, James Bond movies, the 1971 Guy Hamilton-directed feature, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I am host number two, Mark Cerulli of Illuminar.tv. And once again, we have uh, our special guest, uh, the editor-in-chief of Cinematro Magazine, uh, my old buddy, Lee Pfeiffer. How are you guys? Good to join you again. Doing great. Glad to have you back, Lee. Uh, as we go through this uh, fascinating film, we're still out in the we're fil- still out in the deserts of either uh, South South Africa or Nevada, depending on how you're looking at it. And uh, they're throwing a dentist into a hole. It's uh, it's like you say. This it's a we've discussed it before. Not to be too repetitive. Uh, uh, this is a uh, a film that is beloved by some Bond fans, but not uh, not by others because some of us felt that it was rather disappointing they couldn't live up to the return of sean connery and it's a it's definitely a bit flabby script wise and messy script wise but it is a fun film and uh uh has a lot of attributes to it and it's the last official sean connery bond movie that's right, because his 1983 film, Diamonds, uh, Never Say Never Again, is a remake of Thunderball and was not produced by Eon Productions, the official James Bond producers of all the other ones, other than the 1967 Casino Royale, which was a uh, another rights issue, so they made a comedy out of that. I always feel bad that it's not... Someday I will do a, a Casino Royale minute, that's... The fascinating film. I love it, but I won't. I won't get off the track here. (laughs) Yeah, we'll 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 veer. I noticed that the I I do not know who the helicopter pilot is, but uh, he's he's flying left seat with, as far as I can tell, nobody in the right. So I don't know. (laughs) Did did he actually fly in? Why is the door open? It's just there, I guess. Why is that other door open? That's what I'd like to know. I, I want to know is how did he get his headset off so fast? If you watch the the guy, the pilot, the stunt guy actually landing the plane, there's a there's a brief cut scene about second uh, second eighteen with Winton Kid marching out, and we suddenly find the helicopter landed. The guy has somehow his headphones mm. have disappeared, and he's pulled out a gun and he's turned into a, a Hollywood actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it's the magic yeah. of movies. Uh, uh, this all this setup uh, just uh, you know it seems more intriguing than at least in my opinion than it, it ever uh, materializes in the rest of the film because this is kind of interesting all these people involved in this diamond smuggling network and everything and it it all pretty much goes south with the film just just continues to go off in wacky directions as it goes on and. Uh, the central plot of this whole thing of diamond smuggling and everything takes second fiddle to uh, some of the more outlandish aspects of, of the, uh, of the script. But yeah. Now one of the things, I mean, we, we talk about this, we've already talked about how the script is a mess, but one of the things I'm trying to follow is we never see, we never get a scene where they've removed the diamonds from the box. And I'm trying to think, well, it, what it about did... inside the funeral parlor? Well, yeah, I mean that that comes that comes up later. But what I'm what I'm saying right here, this, these this particular scenes yeah. that we've been watching this past week yeah. have been we saw. Well, they have two boxes. Well, no, no, no. I mean, here they 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 have one with obviously a, a 
Bambois yeah. in it. And then, then he stoops down and picks up another one before they go off into the sunset holding hands. That's where the switcheroo was then at the, at the previous time. Unless you watch it over and over yeah. and over, you might miss <laughs> it. And just think where they are now is probably a strip mall and yeah, a housing probably, complex. Yeah, uh, there's, there's probably little ranch houses up and down the hill. Although, you know, we have visited several sites in the Nevada area, and they're still pretty much as it was. It's surprising surprising how undeveloped Nevada remains. Nevada. Wow. Nevada. Can, Nevada. Kill you Excuse me. Nevada. <laughs> Nevada. Uh, you know, like I say, there's, there's some sloppy work here, though, special effects, you know, day for night and all of that. That's, uh, of course, uh, that was the technique of the time. Some of the special effects in this film are, are rather flimsy, I think, especially uh, towards the end. But it progresses well enough. It's never dull. It never commits the cardinal sin of being dull. So uh, that is, it, it certainly isn't, for me, the worst Bond movie. I mean, to me, the worst Bond movie is The Man with the Golden Gun. I, you know, it's funny, when, when you were talking about not being satisfied with diamonds, I felt that way when I left uh, Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, like, I felt that's awful. That's a Bond film? Oh. I thought it was terrible. Years later, I, I was—I got to know Christopher Lee, and uh, was having lunch with him in London. He said to me, "You know, I just read something that you wrote about my Bond movie. This—this this was, I don't know, maybe ten years ago." He said, "I said, what? He said, you, you, you wrote that it's one of the worst Bond movies ever made." I said, "I, I never said that, Christopher. I never wrote that." He said, "Yes, you did. I read it myself." I said, "No, what I wrote was that it is the worst Bond movie." <laughs> So then did he turn to the waiter and demand Tabasco? Or a <laughs> good sense of humor, actually. But dry, but good sense of humor. Diamond, to me, is like, yeah, the first one that I kind of didn't like, but The Man with the Golden Gun was the first one that I really didn't like, and the only one whose merits I haven't warmed to in the, in the intervening years. I can't. I can go back and watch almost any Bond film, even the silly ones, you know, View to a Kill or Moonraker. I think there's enough good stuff in there to, to get me through it but I, I can't watch man with the golden gun and uh you know diamonds are forever is i mean it, it looks it looks like a masterpiece compared to that mm. both were directed by guy hamilton yeah. and again it's, and it's, written it's, by uh mankowitz, by tom mankowitz. with richard maybaum right. but you can easily see tom mankowitz's was the prevailing writer on these because all of a sudden with his joining the series for uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and Man with the Golden Gun, uh, those films are distinctly uh, humorous and uh, in, in a way that the earlier ones, they all had humor, but I mean, uh, these are, are, I would say, over-the-top, slapsticky mm -hmm. sort of humor with, with larger-than-life characters that are introduced simply for comedic effect. Uh, I mean, the the sheriff uh, in Live and Let Die, when he's introduced, I mean, this guy, the scene is so long and it, he, he gets some prominent billing in it, even though he's just in this one scene. And they, they, they liked it so much that they brought him back the second time and with disastrous results. And it's this type of introduction of characters not meant to be realistic in any way that, that really begins, in, in my opinion, in, uh, uh, in Diamonds Off Forever. Because, uh, as I said previously, these are not people that are supposed to uh, provide a sense of real menace, but rather laughter. Bond is very un. For most of this movie, Bond is completely unnecessary to the plot. He could, I mean, he could just show up, find out that there was a oil platform in Baja, and <laughs> the rest. <laughs> pretty much everything happens without him. It just. You know, the, the, 
Yeah, I think Connery, Connery gave this story. I don't know whether it's true at the time. Oh, I came back to the role, uh, you know, because it was the best script of the series. I mean, is he kidding? <laughs> you know, he, he must have been drinking heavily when he read this one. But uh, obviously the financial considerations were very important to him. He was paid, it seems almost laughable today, but one and a quarter million dollars, which was like a world record. It got it into the... Oh, Guinness, it was huge, huge, of, huge. And huge a percentage of what then, I guess, were the profits when when you could still trust studios <laughs> to deliver on profits uh, but today it would be a percentage of the gross but uh, he was well rewarded he used all that money that he was paid to establish a charitable uh, organization trust in, yeah. trust in uh, Scotland to help young people who are impoverished uh, to emerge as filmmakers or actors and uh, uh, so he did give away all the money but he also needed a hit around this time because uh, when Connery left the series in 67 he was actually contracted to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service legally contracted to do it but he was such a pain in the arse about uh, complaining that he didn't want to do these films anymore. And Cubby, Broccoli, and Harry Saltzman were fighting with each other. They were fighting with him. He was fighting with them that they just let him loose out of that last picture. They didn't want him to do it with a gun to his head. He, he right away started making movies, and uh, he made some good ones. The Western Shalico, uh, the Molly Maguires, the Anderson mm. Tapes. But and, uh, Anderson Tapes, a great film. Yeah, very good. That's I haven't about, seen that's Shalico. Only one of the, How is Shalico? Shalico's a good movie. I, I mean, I was friends with the producer, uh, Ewan Lloyd, who made it and he said Connery uh, uh, didn't want to do it because it was a western and uh, Ewan said well you know uh, he paid Connery close to a million dollars for that he took all of his money as an independent producer he never made a dime from the movie but it did get him established as an independent producer and Connery was good in it he was surprisingly effective in a, in a western uh, but it didn't it, you know, it wasn't like a blockbuster and the Molly Maguires which he made in 1970 for a great director Martin Ritt was a very somber mm. but excellent film about the exploitation of Irish coal miners. Well, not the sort of thing that gets them packed in on a Saturday yeah. night, you know. And Connery was starting to suffer from this reputation that, uh, hey, he wasn't a good box office. If, if you took Bond away from him, you know, he can't sell a picture. Mm. And uh, the Anderson tapes, ironically, came out after Connery had thrown in the towel and agreed to come back for Diamonds Off Forever. And ironically, the Anderson tapes was a pretty sizable hit. But uh, w whether <laughs> that would have changed Connery's mind about doing one more Bond had it come out before then, I don't know. But uh, uh, Connery, you know, throughout the 70s and, and the 80s, he made a lot of fine movies that weren't necessarily as big a hits as you might think. You know, the Robin and Marion wasn't a hit. Man Who Would Be the King. The Red Tent. Yeah, Red Tent. Uh, the the Man Who Would Be King. Man Who Would Be King is a great movie. Oh, what and, a great uh, film. Uh, it, was, it was a hit, but it wasn't like a colossal right. hit like it should have been. The Wind and the Lions, a really good movie, didn't do all that well. So, I mean, he suffered uh, for a number of years cranking out really good movies without... Uh, without some of them getting the reception they deserve. So, uh, and he turned down the Thomas Crown affair, right? I don't he think he turned it, it down. Bondy. No, Norman Jewison, I 
don't believe he. I, I don't know. I, I know Norman Jewison, the director, was going to approach Connery about doing that mm -hmm. uh, uh, in 1968. Steve McQueen had a chance encounter with him, and McQueen imposed upon him to cast him against type as the sophisticated sort of guy. So whether Connery was ever, I can't believe that they offered it to Connery and then withdrew it. That I don't think that would have ever happened. Uh, you wouldn't go back on the stature of a man of that stature. You know, I don't think he was ever approached for it. But Connery, suffice it to say, needed a hit. Diamonds Are Forever gave him that hit. It was a big hit. The previous film on Her Majesty's Secret Service was certainly not a bomb. It made a lot of money, but only about half of what a Connery film would make. So by uh, the interesting story is, uh, you know, I don't want to name drop here, but a friend of mine is David Picker, who was running, head of, he was the head of production at United Artists. Uh, uh, when On Her Majesty's Secret Service came out and uh, they said, oh, you know, well, we've got to keep doing Bond. We have to do something to get it back on track after George Lazenby left. And they signed John mm. Gavin to be Bond. I mean, this was officially, you know, announced John Gavin was going to be Bond, an American actor. It would have been a terrible decision, I think, to have an American play Bond. And Picker couldn't get happy with it. He just said, uh, I, I just... You know, I would have accepted it, but I had to give Connery one more shot. And he flew over to uh, Spain at the time and played golf with Connery because he said, if you want to do business with Connery, you play golf with him. <laughs> and uh, they came up with this thing where he says, OK, look, you know, what is it that you want? And Connery said, I, you know, I want the biggest salary ever offered, but I'm going to give it all away, which he did. And that's how Connery came back on this. So uh, they tried to get him back for live and let die. Uh, but he, he couldn't be persuaded a second time. Hmm. How is it, uh, Lee, how do you think that Broccoli is usually a pretty canny observer of how business goes? How is it that he didn't know that the public didn't just want James Bond movies? They wanted Sean Connery as James Bond. I mean, why would he have let him go in six, even, apart from he's hard to work with? Well, yeah, it was have. hard to work with. I mean, that was it. I mean, this is. And it was the money, too. But I, I heard that he was. He found out that Dean Martin got a big upfront percentage on uh, on the Matt Helm movies, and and he was furious because he wasn't getting those kind of deals. Well, I do know, Cubby told me uh, that, he said, I, I don't really understand the animosity that came about be, with Connery towards him, because he said the, the guy Connery didn't like was Harry Saltzman. He said he really didn't like Harry Saltzman. And he said that uh, when, they, when Connery agreed to come back for Diamonds Are Forever, it was a pretty tense situation. Guys, it ended on a bad note four years before. And Connery, one of his demands to Cubby was that Harry couldn't be on the set. And Cubby said, yeah, the guy's my part. <laughs> He's producing the movie with me. That's not going to happen. And Connery is like, well, you know, keep my interaction with him at a bare minimum. Apparently it went back to Dr. No, where, you know, Connery was a nobody. They made him into a star. And But he came from a very modest economic background, Connery. And uh, Harry Saltzman uh, supposedly had promised Connery a 200-pound wardrobe allowance that he never delivered on. And Connery's the kind of guy, if you give your word, you give your word. And he, ne he never got over that with Harry, the 200 pounds, it really bothered him. And that set the course for not liking him. And, and by the time Thunderball was coming out, Playboy ran a uh, very candid interview with Connery on, from the set of Thunderball. And uh, 
Connery publicly said terrible things about broccoli and Saltzman. They, <laughs> they really did. And, uh, Whoops. <laughs> yeah. That that uh, he knew he was what he was doing when he said it, and that really caused tension. They did You Only Live Twice together in Japan, which was a very high-pressure situation. Connery was followed all over the place by the Japanese paparazzi, which really pissed them off. He just It was having an effect on his marriage. Um, Connery had the, maybe the naive belief that he could be this gigantic superstar when he was on screen, but could still walk down the streets of London and New York and have his privacy, which wasn't going to happen. And he didn't deal with it very well. It, it, ultimately, the pressures of Bond and everything did cause his marriage to disintegrate. And, uh, you know, uh, he uh, I don't think he had a bad time of it on Diamonds Are Forever, though. I never heard him complain much about that because to, in order to get back, he had all the contracts written exactly the way he wanted them. Well, it was also and the shooting schedule. Said, Twice was like a six or seven month shooting schedule. Yeah. And Connery said these things were taking longer. They were becoming more complicated. And he said they were becoming more, uh, less interesting and more dependent on the gadgetry rather than the people. And uh, he, he said he had built in to this one a very severe penalty clause. That every day they went over budget, he would get. I, I think it was 10000 a, a week is what I remember. Something like yeah. that. It was big money at the time. And he, he said very cynically one time later, years later, huh, coincidentally, that's the only film that ended right on time. You know, so, so I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know. But uh, he, he made some draconian demands on this. But it was well worth it. I mean, the movie cost, I think, about $7 million. And it, at the time, it grossed well over $100 yeah. million bucks wow. internationally. And that, for, you know, when you think about it for those days, that's a... I don't yeah. think any did, movie did, today did gets have that a... kind of return on its investment, you know. Oh, yeah. Did he get a piece of it, too? Did he have a... Yeah, he did. Okay. And I, I, again, I think in those days, you could still, agents would still demand a piece of the profits. Nobody does that anymore because there never are any profits. You know, they're probably yeah. shown Star <laughs> Wars. Losers, no yeah, matter Star what, Wars yeah. is still like 50 million in the red or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, we, we, uh, when Mark and I had done the airport minute, we... Uh, Found out that uh, I can't imagine if he was upset about Matt Helm because, uh, when he found out about Dean Martin and uh, Burt Lancaster each getting seven million dollars as part of the uh, the the back end of the, the deal. Uh, and, on, uh, on which film? I'm sorry. What, what was it? On Airport, the 1970 oh, film yeah. Airport. They uh, yeah. they walked they, they each walked away with seven million dollars. You mean from the grosses and everything? They certainly weren't be paid. So. Right. Yeah. No, not the salary, yeah. but the actual. They they had asked. I think they wound up getting like something like ten percent of the entire movie take. It was insane. And it was a surprise hit. It was a monster hit. Yeah, yeah. but drifting. But I will say, I remember seeing it at Radio City, um, standing online at Easter in 1970, and uh, a lady I know just wrote a book about Radio City. Uh, she was the one who saved it from destruction back in the 80s. And uh, she said the airport was the the most successful run they ever had of a movie at Radio City. I think it, it, wow. it, it, it played there more weeks than any other film, you know. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, Connery was, you know, he was reading about all these grosses that people were getting, and, and he always felt exploited. And, uh, he felt that he uh, never got what he deserved for all these toys and games and everything that came out at the time, and the, the, the big Bond boom, and that uh, he always felt that he was being exploited in some way. Now, Cubby told me, he said... Uh, uh, 
I was at Cubby's house one time and he said, uh, he said, look at this newspaper. It came out. It was like the LA Times or something. And uh, uh, he, uh, he had just won, Cubby had just won a libel suit against Connery for saying some terrible things about him in the paper. And he said, I don't even want the money. I'm giving it away. He said, but I, I don't know why this guy doesn't like me. He said, all I ever did was make him a multimillionaire and make him internationally famous. So Covey was kind of heard about that, but they did reconcile. Uh, everyone should watch the documentary, the feature-length documentary, Everything or Nothing, which came out in 2012. There's some remarkable insights into the Connery-Covey relationship there, but apparently when Covey was not doing well, he was at, at his end, Connery did call him and they did reconcile, which is nice to know. You know, we're, we're as we're as we're getting to the end of this particular minute, we watched the the fame the fame the, the most famous hand holding in this entire movie uh, of uh, Winton Kid holding hands as they skip skip off away from the exploding helicopter. Which, by the way, while we're just in mentioning in passing, that was a pretty good helicopter explosion. I mean, the uh, the overlay of the optical explosion seemed to match yes. quite well with the floor effect and the of, falling wreckage. Yeah. It's at the yeah. end uh, during the battle scene where some of the helicopters being destroyed almost have like almost like painted on explosions. Yeah, so they, they don't. Look yeah, they're on. they're pretty horrific. Yeah. But this one, they actually it looks like they got all the the pieces yeah. right. Um, Mark, you had talked with Putter about the scene with they were holding hands. I think you had a you had a story about. He just he kind of didn't feel comfortable doing it, and. Uh... You know, it was in the script, and they and they did it. And uh, uh, you know, back then it was, I guess, you know, not I guess it was controversial. You know, yeah. there weren't openly gay characters on screen that much back then, uh, so he didn't feel comfortable. But you know, Glover being the uh, the actor that he was, he was perfectly uh, able to deal with it. But uh, yeah, you know, I think he's made his peace with it now for sure. Hey, it was a good role for him. Yeah, really, it's. Uh... It's it's it, he. They both look like they're having fun in this scene, but I think Putter Putter ha seems to be especially pleased with with the movie wherever he's at. Well, he's like, I'm Putter gonna... couldn't deal with the fame aspect. He said he was at the beach with his kids, and some kid came up to him. Your and diamonds are forever. And Putter went, No, no, not me, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, But there's one thing Putter can't say is that there's a lot of guys that look like him. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. true. Yeah. Well, he said yeah, that, that one time he was driving out here and some celebrity pulled up next to him and he had the same reaction. And that's when he could start to realize, oh, now I get what people are doing. And, and then he was able to, to kind of calm down with it. But he still – he won't do conventions or things like yeah. that. Wow. Well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the price of fame. It's, yeah. it's, it's a shame. I mean, and some people embrace it. Some people, I mean, they're um, a long time ago, I, <laughs> I met uh, Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan, mm. and he loved being Captain Kangaroo. I mean, he'd, he'd sign stuff, he'd shake hands. It was it just, that was, that was his life. He Same really enjoyed it. Uh, the Lone Ranger, uh, what, what's his name? The uh... Oh, Clayton Moore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, that was that was his role. My uh, uh my wife grew up in the Boston area and uh, the the kid performer up there was a fellow named Rex Trailer and he was a cowboy like the Lone Ranger. And anywhere he went, you could see these we we met him, he was in his 90s and uh, we were at a rotary uh, of all places a rodeo in New England. <laughs> and uh 
Rex Trailer was there and he was signing he was signing autographs and stuff like that and they were selling old uh, DVDs and things but he was just walking through a crowd and you could see all these all these old women who were like in their you know 50s and 60s who turned in like their faces turned into like little kids mm, yeah, and there was yeah. that's Rex Trailer and it's this old guy who was you know their childhood hero and he's somebody that could accept this this adulation that this is you know he he gives it back to the fans and stuff. Although you know you can see with Putter's situation, I mean you're trying to relax with your kid on a beach and somebody's handing a handing a sharpie and some piece of cardboard. Well, the other the other aspect is uh, some friend of his said, "Hey, your signature is all over eBay," and apparently he uh, didn't sign a lot of that stuff, so he got he got kind of ticked off about it. Which you can understand if you ever if you ever do any like, TV anything on tv even without mentioning it to people that that you did like an interview on tv or something it's just amazing to me how many people see this stuff even if it's on like an obscure network or something it's just incredible what the power of it is so i can imagine being on a, in a james bond movie no matter how brief the role uh it must be with you for life really I there mean, are people, people from the star wars movies who have like a one second close-up and they they make a living, well, you, you know, that, signing you photos. See that documentary. It's called Elm's Tree Seventy Six. No, I want to see that. Get that. Yeah, it's it's rather amusing because it just consists of people that had not supporting roles. They were like extras, you know, the the third stormtrooper from the right door or something. And, and there's people that line up to get their autographs at uh, you know these conventions. <laughs> so. Yeah, if you if you've got an action figure somewhere, yeah. you're golden. You know? yeah, oh yeah, that's that's. Uh, I asked David McCallum one time. You know what what he enjoyed the most about uh, the man from Uncle years. He said, "Well, I'll tell you what I appreciate most about it now." I said, "What's that?" He said, "I have an action figure of myself." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "My kids growing up thought it was like the coolest thing in the world." You know, when you know many years later they found out there was a uh, an action figure of Dad. <laughs> That's great. So. <laughs> Oh wow! Well, uh, we're we're at the end of the thirteenth minute already, and it looks like the this the the chain is starting to unravel. We've gotten rid of the dentist and Joe and and the guy in the yeah. helicopter, so we're gonna we're gonna meet some meet some more people next week who uh, are definitely marked marked for doom with these diamonds. Um, but Lee, thank you again so much for being on. We My will pleasure. We will definitely have you on in future minutes. And yes, uh, we're going and, to and Lee, go blow up your pants, okay? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, seriously. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. My great. We, we, we will see you again. For folks listening in, uh, please join us online all over the place. We are on Facebook. Go to uh, 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 Operation Grand Slam, which is always on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. 007 Minute is our Twitter handle. You can find us at the big site, 007minute.com, where you can catch previous episodes and look for new episodes always available on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for 007 Minute, one big word. Please leave us a review on iTunes, and we would appreciate that very much because the more people that leave reviews, great reviews. Please, five stars or as many as you can click on the, the right-hand side of that uh, stars button. Five diamonds. Five diamonds, yeah, please do. Uh, leave us leave us some, uh, some good reviews there. We appreciate that very much. We will pick this up on our next show, Minute 14, where we're going to meet, uh, well, we're going to get an education from a nice little old lady. So uh, join us here next time. On the 007 Minute, faster than you could say, Bert Saxby. Bert Saxby? Yeah. Tell him he's fired. <laughs>